Hey, my name is Colton. I'm one of the servant leaders here at Ethos. Thank you so much for checking out our podcast today. We hope that you can lean in and enjoy this message. Today, as we conclude our series, do me a huge favor in welcoming our friends, Maddie Rinaldi, Candice Barchi, Lane Yerrick, and Brian Johnson, somebody. Hi, everybody. Um, as Jordan said, my name is Maddie, and I am so excited and honored to be sharing with you all today just some things that God's been speaking to me about, and that is on the concept of the beauty of unmet expectations. So did anyone else ever grow up with, or maybe you are this type of parent who was super organized, always planning something, and maybe loved the little serotonin boost that came with checking off a box on a to-do list a little too much? Anybody? couple hands. Okay. So that for me was my mom. My mom was the best at planning me and my siblings' birthday parties growing up, um, any type of school function. Uh, she was PTA parent of the year in my book. And she was always the best at planning our family vacations. And I can remember one in particular. Um, we had planned a trip to um, Pensacola, Florida, and we were going to rent an RV and camp down by the beach for the week. And I had so many expectations and plans for what I wanted to do that week. Um, some of which, but not limited to, were finding shells on the beach with my mom, uh, sitting around a campfire with my dad, um, watching my younger sister experience the sand and ocean for the first time, and then ultimately my personal fave was um, building sand castles with my brother, which would have ultimately turned into me burying him in the sand and potentially leaving him there, depending on how nice he was to me that day, um, which most of the time was, Okay, but you never know. So we get there, and it is freezing cold. Um, we're bundled up with layers, sweatshirts, sweatpants, the whole nine yards, not even remotely thinking of going anywhere close to the freezing cold water, because no thank you. And um, so all of these expectations and plans that not only my mom had planned for, but that I myself had, um, completely went out the window. Um, but my mom, being the planner that she is, and always having the best plan, um, came up with a surprise trip with my dad's approval um, to go further south down to Disney. And as 10-year-old me heard the word Disney, we're going to Disney, I completely forgot about anything that I wanted to do. I was like, beach what? I don't, I don't need to do any of that. Let's go to Disney. So I think sometimes that's how life works. We have our expectations of plans and things that we expect to do. And then life sometimes um, throws us a curveball. And that's that's okay, um, as long as we keep our trust in God. So if you guys have your Bibles, um, I'm going to be reading from Psalm 37, verse 4. And it says, make God the utmost delight of your life, and he will provide for you what you desire the most. And whenever I was a kid and I would hear this verse, I would think, oh, I just have to ask God, and he'll give me whatever I want, because I want it. And that, for me, was a dog, because my parents were always like, no, we're not getting a dog. You're not going to take care of it. We're going to end up taking care of it. No, 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 no. So I was like, okay, I'll just pray and ask God, because obviously God overrules parents, right? So um, 
that never ended up happening because like me, so many of us miss the important part of that verse, which is make God the utmost delight of your life. And in this passage, one who delights in the Lord is someone who has desires that are in line and in sync with God's further lives. That comes from laying down our expectations and being in close proximity to learn his plans and expectations for us. It means that our expectations and desires become so synonymous to his that there's really no difference between them. Our hearts truly find peace, joy, and fulfillment in him, so no wonder we often find ourselves frustrated, sad, hurt, angry, fill in the blank with whatever emotion you might experience when that happens, when our desires and expectations don't happen in the time or manner we think they should, or even at all sometimes. So we see this super prevalent in the story of Joseph, and actually the life of Joseph, in Genesis chapters 37 through 45. Joseph had a lot of dreams, both literally and figuratively, for how he anticipated his life to go. None of which, I'm sure, included um, being thrown in a pit, left for dead, to then being pulled out to throw, to sold in slavery, uh, wrongly accused of seduction, and then being thrown in jail, forgotten, to finally be elevated to a place of respect and leadership, to come face to face again with the reality and pain of his unmet expectations from years before, when he was reunited with his brothers, who were the very people who started the chain of events that ultimately diverted Joseph from the plans that he had for his life, or so he thought. Joseph, however, through it all, the highs, the lows, and all the dead and unmet expectations that he had for his life, trusted God and knew that God was with him. God's plans for Joseph far exceeded his own plans for his life, and I'm sure they do for ours too. So you're probably thinking, Maddie, that all sounds really great, but how does that apply to me now in 2021, in this moment, right now? And I think how we make God the utmost delight of our lives and reconcile the areas of our lives that maybe haven't gone to plan or how we expected them to. And it's actually pretty practical. There's three ways. So we draw close to God. We spend time in his presence to receive comfort, peace, and direction about his expectations for our lives. Number two, we trust the process by remaining consistent in our pursuit of him and his presence. And number three, we give thanks in all things regardless of how things turn out. And I'm wondering what it would look like if we as the church, or even just individual believers in this room, shared our experiences with unmet expectations and the beauty of becoming so meshed with his. We should live as heaven-hearted people and should always be leaning into all that God has for us. And I had a lot of expectations of how I thought my adult life would be growing up. Um, I often remember dreaming about being a lawyer, a teacher, a singer, and a ballerina all at the same time. Um, don't know how I was going to do that, but hey, kid can dream. Um, and I'd be married by the time that I was 25 with kids, and that both of my parents would live till they were way over 100. And while some of those things are funny, and I'm glad that they didn't come true, there's still sometimes pain that's linked to unmet expectations. But whether good or bad things that have happened that weren't in my plans or things that might not be in yours, it's going to be a-okay. It's actually going to be more than okay. It's going to be great. Because when we choose to consistently draw close to God, trust the process of his plan in our lives, and give thanks in all things, he's so faithful and his plans are always higher than ours. 
and God cares far more about his destiny for our lives than our fleeting, ever-changing, sometimes selfish desires. So lean into him and know that his expectations and plans he has for your life, whatever stage or season that you might find yourself in, are so infinitely greater than what we could ever think, dream, or imagine. So he's not finished with you yet and have confidence that he has good plans for you. Thank you. Wow. Maddie Rinaldi. Powerful. Thank you. That was awesome. And you know what? You have so much credibility because you can tell when you speak, you're living what you're talking about. And it matters. So thank you. Um, so I'm one of the people that Maddie was talking about who likes sort of a rigid schedule. I hate interruptions. I hate them with a white, hot, holy passion. I, I hate when things um, get in the way of my plans, of what I've decided I need to accomplish, either in the long term or even on a daily basis. Things that get in the way of what I want to get done. Those, those things that jump up, that pop up in our lives, that stand between me, where I am, and where I want to be over there, that they, those things that get in the way, those are the worst. This is true, especially when it comes to my work. When I, when I get up in the morning, I am a, a, a guy who works out a strategy for that day. And that strategy for the day always comes with a list, a checklist that I can work through through my day, and as I approach my day, then I just systematically work my way through that list, and hopefully by the end of the day, by the time I leave the office, uh, those things are all checked off. But you know, despite my planning, despite um, my desire to get all those things done, despite my efforts to make a very systematic, straight path between here and there, interruptions happen all the time. Things jump up and get in the way. And so what God has been teaching me, in answer to the question we were all asked, what God has been teaching me is that I need to look at those interruptions differently. And especially through um, the circumstances of my own life and then reading through the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, God has been teaching me this. The most important things that God wants to do in me and through me show up in my life disguised as interruptions to my own plans. They show up masquerading as obstacles between where I am and where I want to get. God's best for me, and also God's best for others through me, very, very often show up in the form of an inconvenience, as an interruption, as an obstacle to what I want to accomplish, to my own plans. And it turns out this is nothing new. This, it turns out this has been something that's been going on for, for centuries. And uh, it turns out that one of my favorite stories in all the Bible is about exactly this. It's about God showing up disguised as a giant 
inconvenient interruption. And I want to read a bit of that story to you. It's in Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 1 to maybe 15. And I had this marked out in first service. I don't know. Okay. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. Uh, verse 1, they, that's Jesus and his disciples, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. The man lived in the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out, and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. And I, this always makes me just a little bit sad. I know it's a, but anyway, this, this part's a little sad. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the, the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the, into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. Verse 15, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. So Jesus, the context of this text, Jesus and his disciples, they've just finished in chapters 3 and 4 of Mark, of this extended time of teaching crowds that were growing bigger and bigger and bigger over, the t over time. Jesus saw his influence growing. His disciples heard Jesus teaching, and they watched him heal. He went uh, all around healing and doing miracles. They've also engaged in these very uh, contentious, adversarial, and dangerous conflicts with religious and political leaders. The power brokers of culture were coming after Jesus now, and we learn in other texts that they were plotting to kill him already. And so then they, they try to make their escape. They try to leave this region for a little while to allow things to cool down. And so they get in a boat and start traveling across a lake, and they're caught in a storm, a storm that we learn that the disciples were convinced they were going to die. And Jesus calmed the storm with a word. And now they've finally reached the shore. They're exhausted from this terrifying trip across the sea, and they're tired, and they just want a few minutes to rest, a few minutes to regroup, a few minutes to think about what they've seen and heard, what they're experiencing, to make a plan. And they deserved it. They wanted just a few minutes of time off, but they didn't get it. All these plans were immediately interrupted. 
In verses 1 to 5, Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples, just standing there, getting out of a boat, minding their own business, all of a sudden this bloody, pus-oozing, screaming and wailing, dirt-covered, demon-possessed guy comes running down the hill from the graveyard, and verse 7 says he screams at Jesus at the top of his voice. We learn a little bit about this guy. We learn that this is a guy who lives in the tombs. It means he's entirely cut off from any human community. He is entirely disconnected from the people around him. And we learn even further that the only human interaction he has, his life has degenerated to such a point that the only human interaction he has is when people come after him. They mount a posse from the village and they try to chain him up so that they can, so they can control him and put him away. This is the guy that the village children laugh at and that the parents warn them about. This is the guy that, that people cross the street when they see him coming or they quickly roll up the windows on their donkey carts as they see him walking up the sidewalk. Now I have a little bit of a, a strange question for you. Have you ever had your life interrupted by someone like that? Have you ever had your life interrupted in this way? You know, my initial reaction is, no, I've never had a bloody, naked, screaming guy come and interrupt me. But, but think about it a little bit more. Do you know anyone who is totally isolated and alone and disconnected? Anybody that's, that's just left by themselves, that, that you can see people keep at arm's length, that they keep at a distance, because, that are walled off from community because they don't quite fit in. They're awkward. They make you feel different. Do you know anyone who is, who is hard to be around because their wounds haven't healed? whose scars haven't faded? Do you know anyone who's been hurt so badly that they scream and yell and act out in all these relationally subversive and even self-destructive ways in an effort to just for a few minutes ease the pain that they're still experiencing? Do you know anybody like that? Can you picture someone in your mind? Is there a face there that you can picture? Is there someone in the periphery of your life that carries this odor of isolation, whose life oozes the pus of disconnection and pain? I know that's gross. It, it's meant to be, to give kind of a visceral sense of what this is like. Can you picture anyone like that? Well, anyway, at this horribly inconvenient, inopportune time, Jesus is confronted with this crazy-eyed, dung-smelling, profanity-spewing interruption invading his other plans, and he has a choice to make. Do I push past him and get on with my plans? Do I, do I push him aside so that I can move to the places that I want to go, the places that I was moving towards that were on the agenda? Or will I put into action God's love for every single life, even this one guy? Will I make this one guy a priority 
over and above what's convenient, over and above what I've already got planned, over and above my existing agenda, even over and above what my 12 friends might think, will I make room for him? We know the choice that Jesus made. We, we read it. Throughout the Gospels, we see him make this same choice over and over and over again. And I believe what God is trying to teach me in this season of life is that I need to make the same choice. In imitation of Jesus and empowered by the spirit of Jesus living in me, I believe I'm called to open my arms, extend my hands to the most desperate, the least lovable, the most inconvenient, at the most impractical, inopportune times, to the people around the world, from right here in central Ohio to the other side of the globe, to the people that the world values the least, but who need God the most. That's what God's been teaching me. He's been teaching me that he's calling me, and I believe he's calling us as a faith community to love every person in Jesus' name. So, thank you. Well, hello, everyone. Again, my name is Lane, and... I have uh, the great privilege of speaking about healthy communication. And I mentioned in the first service, um, I'm not good at coming up with fancy titles. And so this is clear communication, this is what it is. <laughs> and hopefully I can communicate that well. But if you're anything like me, um, conflict can scare you. Conflict scares me, I don't like it. Um, just thinking about this, um, even after first service, conflict and even just talking to people like if you ask my family they're here back in the day like when I was younger I remember when I was in Boy Scouts I would always be like get told to like eat like contact people and be like hey plan this I was like yeah for sure I got you and they'd be like just call them up like I'll just write them an email I'll just I'll just email them and like you know I don't have to talk to them in person I hated that and I've gotten so much better at that um, and and it got so much worse with conflict because it's just scary you don't want to deal with it and sometimes the scarier part honestly with conflict is not really the conflict itself, but resolving conflict, because you have to talk to people, you have to put yourself out there, you have to sometimes admit fault. Right. It's scary, and it's honestly sometimes annoying and anxiety-inducing, inducing. but honestly, sometimes I'd rather sit in that anger, confusion, discomfort, and not deal with it, because it's just so much more familiar than trying to deal with the, the pain and, and make myself vulnerable. But I know full well that communicating that problem and my thoughts and my feelings and listening to the other person is gonna ease the pain and mend that brokenness. Yeah. Not too long ago, my friend Vinny and I, I mean, you guys know Vinny, or at least most people do. You saw him on the screen a little bit ago. Uh, he and I were both kind of frustrated about some things we were working on and just needed to kind of be on the same page about some things, and we just weren't. And so thankfully, Vinny called me up and we just talked about it and kind of just voiced our like own concerns about what we were working on and was able to just really, like he told me what he was feeling, I told, me, I told him what I was feeling. And we both had a really healthy talk and it felt really great. And even afterwards, we felt like we were fine and he called me back a few minutes later just to clear up some more confusion. And after that, it just felt even better. We, we knew that we needed to talk and to get on the same page and we did. 
not too long after that, I met up with one of my friends at a park just to hang out and catch up and pray for one another. And one of the things that we got talking about was conversation and, and this idea of healthy communication. And I was just talking to him about how I loved the idea and the fact that I could come to Ethos and the friends that I have at Ethos, and I can have healthy communication and healthy conversation. And I've had that, and I've grown in that, and I've seen people grow in that. And we're still growing in that, and I'm definitely still growing in that. But I mentioned that to him, and he sat back and just kind of looked away from me and looked out and was just like, wow, that really makes me want to come to Ethos. Now, the big takeaway here is not Ethos is the best church, and we got another one. We got someone else coming. You know, that's not the big takeaway. The big takeaway what, for me, what stuck with me was, wow, he was so drawn to this idea of healthy communication and conversation. So I think this begs the question, why is healthy communication attractive? And so in 1 Peter 3, 8, and 12, 8 through 12, let's give a little context. Peter's writing to, to a group of Gentiles here, letting them know that they're able to be part of God's family. He's communicating to all these people. In the section before it, he's mentioning husbands and wives, and now he's saying, all of you, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, Peter uses language like, do not repay evil with evil, or insult with insult, and keep their tongue from evil and their, and their lips from deceitful speech. And I think that's such a vital portion. Obviously, this is a command and a... Um, a command to people to tell them what not to do. And I think a reason that we don't see a lot of healthy communication or we don't experience that, or sometimes we don't practice that, is because we don't do those things. We gossip, we lie, we talk bad about people. And let's be honest, I think we've all participated in that in some form. We've, we've seen it, we've experienced it, we've been on either side of that. That's just, that's just who we are, we mess up all the time. I mess up all the time. This is still something that I am learning. I think. I think gossip is such a vital portion of this to understand and to, to uh, unwrap. And if we're even more honest, this idea of gossip can kind of be attractive, if you will, or kind of something that we don't really, we find easy to do, I will say. When we gossip about others, um, the attention's off of us. We become seemingly flawless. We can feel like we're making progress without actually stepping in or finding a solution to the problem. And we give each other reasons to pray for the person we're gossiping about. Right. How many times have we heard that? How many times have I said that? Well, I just, I'm saying this because I want you to pray for them. Right. You know, I'm letting you know about what's going on. Or we can try to justify our gossip. We can try to justify and cover it up with good intentions and promoting prayer. And, you know, I'm saying this with love and this is what's happening. But really, what we're doing in those situations is if we're not presenting, or rather, if we're not if we're excluding people from a conversation that they really should be present for. Right. Really what it boils down to is we're disrespecting them. We're dishonoring them. We're not loving them well. Now, Peter uses this idea of oneness here. He's addressing this, this group and is addressing them in a way saying, be like-minded. And I think Jesus also incorporates that in John 13, 34 through 35, um, with this idea of love one another as well. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And I think sometimes 
it just feels cliche to talk about love. And, and I think with my background growing up, there's times where we've been taught growing and becoming like a better man of God, you know, is not about loving people better, but it's just about like going to that next level of spirituality and just feeling so close to God. And like, it's, it's such a skewed way. And I remember talking about this, um, this talk with Vinny and he actually mentioned this idea of growing, not growing up and up and up and up to this next level and kind of towering over people, but growing and maturing. And this idea of maturing, not growing above people and becoming better, but rather just becoming better disciples and, and more, look more, more and like, looking more and more like Jesus. And again, sometimes it feels cliche, sometimes it feels elementary, but everything we do is in response to God's love for us. So it's, it's elementary, yet it's not. Now, if we're called to love one another, then this has to apply to conversation. If we're called to love one another, we need to have healthy, intentional, and purposeful conversation. It's not simply just something that's attractive and something that is nice to have. You know, it's a nice little thing that we get to have at Ethos. No, this is a need. This is a need for us. Now, the last time I spoke at Ethos, I had a topic about people are our heart, talking about the values that we have here at Ethos and the idea that people are important to us and we want to make time for them, that this is what this is about, like making time for people on Sunday. And in conversation with one of my friends who actually mentioned in the beginning of this, um, in the story, he was reminding me that there was a few things that I had said in that that he thought resonated with him re really well and kind of applied to this. These points were love means we make an effort, we're intentional. It means we allow ourselves to open up knowing that even though it may be uncomfortable, it's going to lead to peace. Love means that we care about people enough to point out the good in them. So, if we say we love one another, again, this needs to apply to our conversations. Therefore, we can say, talk to, not about. In order to have healthy communication, we need to make an effort. We need to be intentional. Talk through the problem, not around it. In order to have healthy communication, we must allow ourselves to open up, knowing that even though it may be uncomfortable, it's going to lead to peace. Talk with wise counsel, not with peers who cannot help. In order to have healthy communication, we need to care about people enough to point out the good in them. And I was, I was thinking about these points, and of course, these are not like the three points that are the end-all, be-all. No, there are so many things we could add onto that. Be consistent, slow down, listen. There are so many things that go into healthy communication that are gonna allow for our relationships to flourish. Not to just be nice and not to be, like, neglect being, or, yeah, these, this, these things are just gonna make our conversations and our relationships healthier and flourish. And so there are so many things that we can unpack with this, but I wanna focus on those three. Now we've said it before, we say it all the time that our goal is to be a relationally healthy church. And so that's why we do things like we have groups. We've got um, things after service like cold brew and donuts. We all get to hang out. That's why we take time to introduce ourselves in the beginning to meet people and to say hi and see a face. And that's why we need to be intentional with our words. That's why we need to be vulnerable with people. And of course, vulnerability is a choice and that's something that we have to be wise about with whom we're vulnerable with. That's why we need to build people up and to point out the good in them and not tear them down. In order to have healthy relationships, we must work on communicating healthily. Again, this is, this is a need. And this is something that I need to do. This is something that I need to work on. This is something that's gonna take time. And thankfully, we have a community here and a, and a family here that we can practice that, that we can engage in healthy conversation and community here. I believe this is the heart of God. I think this is truly something that he desires. Looking at Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Now looking at those, four of the seven 
all have to do with some kind of conversation, some kind of, they all have to do with your speech and the way that you interact with people. Lying tongue, a heart that devises wicked schemes, a false witness who pours out lies, a person who stirs up conflict in the community. If this is not something that's important to God, he wouldn't mention it that many times. This is clearly something God desires for us to grow in and to seek out and, to, and these things to avoid. And so, we're closing here. This is all I'm going to say. Let's answer the question from above. Why is healthy communication attractive? Because God intended for communication between his people to be healthy, and when it's healthy, we begin to look more and more like Jesus. And Jesus was an attractive person, to say it weirdly. It's kind of weird to say that, you know? But I think you know what I mean. And he attracted people that didn't look like him. I mean, think of what Brian just taught on, that we really wouldn't want to be around sometimes because it doesn't feel right or it feels like against our own flesh. But again, we begin to look more and more like Jesus when we apply this. And I think that is the big takeaway from today. Good morning, Ethos. I'm Candace Barchi, um, like Jordan introduced earlier. Um, and I just wanted to share a little bit with you guys. That's really close to my mouth. Um, just about what God's teaching me right now. So a few weeks ago, I was uh, hanging out with a friend. We were doing a play date with our girls. And um, the conversation just kind of took a turn. And we were all of a sudden talking about the Enneagram. Are any of you guys familiar with Enneagram? Just give me a whoop, whoop. Um, yeah, of course. So... Um, so we're just talking about this, and it came up because she's like, you're like, what is, what's your Enneagram number? And I'm like, I don't know. Why is this a thing? Um, and so, you know, out of curiosity and, and slight uh, guilt, I took the Enneagram, and uh, it turns out, like every other Christian woman on the planet, I'm a two. <laughs> Um, but actually, I was like reading it, and I'm like, this isn't me at all. So I started to read through again, and I'm like, well, maybe I'm a three with a wing two, or maybe I'm a two with a wing three, or maybe I'm a ten. <laughs> um, but who knows? However, this particular test, uh, which kind of pointed out that I am something called an achiever, um, resonated with me because the biggest driver for this um, personality type is a fear um, is to feel valuable, excuse me. And its biggest fear is a fear of insignificance. And so this is actually uh, just being honest and vulnerable. This is a space that I feel like I've lived in for a really long time. Um, and having it called out and kind of confirmed through just recalling my past has been really, really powerful. Um, so that looks like my biggest pitfall. It's always been comparison. So it's always about how I'm stacking up to other people and how hard I am working to make myself better. So naturally, um, time and time again, I've given the good, I've given in to the try harder method. Um, as many of you guys have probably done, I read blogs, I buy books that I never read. Um, quick story to that, I literally was walking around the hospital in labor with my third child, starting a book that I had bought like four years previously. <laughs> it's great timing. Um, but I listen to um, podcasts and I make playlists and all of these items um, are not bad in nature, um, but they aren't anything that's going to last. Right. Um, and so where I have been feeling convicted is I need to really tap into a source that's going to last. Um, a source that's not going to leave me in the place that I was initially afraid of um, is that I don't have what it takes to make my own heart better. So on my own, I can't fix my mouth. 
Honestly, we could just stop there. I could pray. We could go have some donuts. Um, I can't muster up on my own enough patience for any part of motherhood. I have three small kids. It's hard. I'm tired. I'm naturally impatient. I'm not a gentle person. That's something I'm like, I pray for gentleness. Um, or I can't, you know, rid myself of shame when I hurt other people or heal myself of bitterness from when other people have hurt me. Um, as I'm trying to pursue, pursue Christ, there's no level of maturity that I can accomplish through my own efforts. Um, I'm only capable of those momentary behavioral modifications, and I know that as I'm looking out this room and I can see only the first row, I'm not alone there. Um, so as I start, a couple of things I just want to share with you guys and for that to remain clear through this whole thing is, one, I'm not an expert on the Holy Spirit. This is like a very small snippet of what I've been learning. The Bible talks way more in depth and way more accurately um, and um, greater about who he is and what he does in our lives and, and what um, our relationship to him is supposed to be. And also, I want you guys to know that I'm still a work in progress. That's one of my favorite things is that I'm, I'm, I haven't arrived yet because if this is how I would be arriving before the Lord, it would be disappointed for him. Um, but Philippians 3.12, um, just to keep it short, says, I'm not saying that I have all this together or that I've made it, but I'm on my way reaching out for Christ as he has wonder wondrously reached out for me. Don't get me wrong, by no means do I count myself an expert in all of this, but I have my eye on the goal, and that's where God is beckoning us onward. Um, so where do we begin then? Uh, first, I think that we have to remember who he is, who the Holy Spirit is. And the Bible gives him many different names, but the one that resonates the most with me and the one that I'm going to talk about today is that he is our helper. Um, John 14, 26, it's uh, on here, but it's the very last verse says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you of all that I've said to you. Um, so we have to connect with the Holy Spirit so that we're able to remember that he is there to help us. Um, secondly, we have to recognize um, and admit, not just see that it's happening, but admit that we are not the ones at work, but it's the Holy Spirit in us that's causing heart change. Yeah. Philippians 2.13 says, for it is God who works who is at, excuse me, for it is God who is at work in you, both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. So it's not anything that we're doing. We can desire it, but that desire comes from God, and to actually follow through with that desire is also from God. So we can think of it this way. When we are the ones that um, are at work, we produce fruit of ourselves. Right. Romans seven eighteen says, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out. So guys, if there is only sin in me, uh, prior to the grace of Jesus, if, if I'm working out of that well of my own sin, it's going to be some pretty nasty fruit we're seeing. But if I'm working, if it's where the Spirit is at work in my life, then I'm going to see fruit of the Spirit. That's what's going to be produced. And that fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22 is love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness, it's gentleness, <laughs> um, and it's self-control. Against these things, there is no law. So not only, just a second. Not only do we need to remember that the Holy Spirit is our helper and admit that we're not the ones that are doing all the things um, that God is doing through us, we're not the reason, we also have to engage the Holy Spirit. 
The Bible talks about how when we um, decide to follow Jesus, that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, that it is already in us. We just need to tap into it so that he is alive in us. Um, so Luke 11 says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open for you. Everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be open. So if you, um, skip ahead a little bit, if you, despite being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So that's what we have to do. We have to ask for it. And God is in the business of us knowing him more. And so he is going to give us more of his helper when we ask. Um, so I'm finishing up a Bible study called um, Don't Miss Out. And I'm doing that with a, a few women here at Ethos. And it's all about the Holy Spirit and what it looks like to engage him. And so the author, Jenny Cunningham, uh, talks a little bit about what that looks like. So one, we've got to confess. First John 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous, and he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, confession seems really daunting and like, I'm good on that. Um, but... It's something that's so vital to us knowing more of who God is and less of who we are. He must become greater. We must become less. So if you don't know what you're supposed to be confessing, here are a few things that you can ask the Holy Spirit for. Ask him to reveal your known sin. Those are the things that we shouldn't have done that we knew we shouldn't have done, or they're the things that we know that we should have done, but we didn't. We can ask him to reveal unknown sin, and then we can buckle up. Because <laughs> these are the areas that we don't even realize that we are living in rebellion to God's will. And lastly, we can reveal, um, we can ask the Holy Spirit to reveal where there is sin of self-righteousness. And that means these are the areas that we ourselves have assigned that we're good enough. That we have arrived, we've made it, we're perfect. And those are the areas that I have been learning the most about. Um, next, we can repent. And repentance is a big word um, for asking the Holy Spirit for a heart change. It's not merely just feeling sorry for our sin and regretting the fact that we're living with the consequences, but we have to literally ask for a new heart. Next, we can surrender our lives to his authority. This can flesh out like a daily prayer. Um, Lord, let all that I am and all that I have be yours. Let me, let me live with you at the center of my life. I want to live a life that is worthy to your calling. Next, we can remain in his word. John 15 talks about how he is the vine and we are the branches. Guys, we must abide, remain, and dwell in his word and in prayer and in worship to him. Next, we can ask, just like that prayer, just like that verse says, ask and it will be given. God is faithful and he wants to give us more and more of himself until we are full and in his likeness. Um, ask the spirit to help you want more of God and less of your sin. And six um, is repeat. So 2020 was all about starting new rhythms, creating new patterns for your family. And I feel like that doesn't have to stop with 2020. We're still in a space where we can reevaluate what's important to us. We can set standards for our families, for ourselves, and make this a priority. The extent to which we are open to the Holy Spirit is the extent to which we're going to know God better. He is God. He um, tr we have to trust that God wants to change us into his likeness and that um, what he has started in us, in me and in you, that he will finish. To close, Philippians 1.6 says that for I am confident in this very thing, that he who began a good work among you will complete it 
by the day of Christ Jesus. Thank you.